tribalism. That only applies to other places, not the United States. Well, guess what? Tribalism is universal. Stay tuned. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. One hears this everywhere today. America seems more divided than ever. We seem to be broken down into tribalism. What can bring us together? Well, there's a basic flaw in that question. The answer is yes, we are tribes. All humanity for all history has been tribes. We as individuals everywhere need to feel a part of something, a community. And in this ever more isolated world, that innate Desire yields great frustration and even anger. And as with so many political states, America may be one country, but we have never been one nation. Nationalism is the most ugly form of tribalism, and it is on the rise yet again. Question is, do tribes have to fight each other? Of course not. Perhaps simply recognizing that tribalism is universal and having sincere respect for each other's tribes is possible. This show was recorded in 2010, and its insights remain valuable. Out of many, one. Can it be out of many, one nation? Are we really one nation? Is any nation one nation? Or are we just a bunch of tribes, really? Well, it's a very interesting subject, and I'm very pleased to have with us right here in the studio the author of Violence Veils and Bloodlines, reporting from the war zone. Louis Salome, thank you very much for being with us. Great time to uh, all of you, our attentive and informed listeners. Well, thank you. And this looks like a uh, fascinating book. The cover, it's, it's a grabber. It has uh, a picture on top of a, of a woman in a uh, burqa, I believe it is. A veiled woman. Yeah, a veiled woman. And, uh, and some uh, explosions and stuff going on in the desert, some smoke burning, reporting from the war zones. Tell us about your background and about, uh, you know, reporting from the war zones is not everything, uh, something that uh, most people know people who do. How did you get to be reporting from the war zones? <laughs> well, it's a vanishing trade uh, because of the changes in journalism in the United States and throughout the world, Bert. Uh, I uh, was teaching school in, in Putnam, Connecticut, actually, and took a job on the weekends with the Worcester Telegram and Gazette in the Putnam office uh, on Mar in March of uh, 1966. Summer came. They asked me to work the, uh, the summer, and teachers are always looking for summer jobs. I took it. I liked it a lot. I thought I could uh, reach and educate more people uh, in the newspaper uh, business than I could in a single classroom. And I left. And uh, from there, it was to, uh, to bureaus in uh, Worcester and Marlboro, Massachusetts, working for the Worcester Telegram and Gazette, and then to, the Mi to Miami and the Miami News uh, for the uh, Cox newspaper group. And uh, Miami News uh, was closed by Cox in 1988. They offered me a job in Washington as a national political correspondent or the Middle East correspondent based in Jerusalem. 
I grabbed the Middle East uh, job, and uh, from there, spent uh, in Jerusalem, spent four years plus, and five years in London, uh, covering every uh, war zones from Northern Ireland all the way to Afghanistan. Wow, covering what's called the Bang Bang, I believe. That's, uh, you know, I, I guess reporters like to get there, and I, I remember years ago, I used to be fascinated. Uh, I was working radio news oh, a long time ago, and there was a reporter I used to love listening to. Julie Flint was her oh. name, and she used to always be really close to the Bang Bang. Is she still around? I, I, I haven't heard if, from her. I don't know if she is, but she worked for the London, uh, it was the Observer. Uh, it was a Sunday paper. And actually, I ran across her in Somalia, uh, where I was uh, in uh, the late uh, 92, I believe. It was, it was a terrible place, and it remains so today. A war and famine and drought, uh, people boiling slices and little pieces of rawhide to survive. It was the only place I ever wept when I was a reporter. And there's a photo in the book of a, a, of a Somali mother and two of her children. It's one of the worst places. Where I, was this again? In Somalia. Uh-huh. And uh, the, the book is filled with small stories about the large story. The small stories are the places I went, the people I met, and what happened to me that illustrate the family, clan, tribal theme, uh, which is the overarching uh, story of the book. And uh, everywhere I went, people would ask me, where are you from? Right. Where are you from? They, wanted, they didn't want to know where I was born. They didn't want to know where I was living. They didn't want to know the color uh, or script of my passport. They wanted to know my ancestry. And so I, they, they look at me and they see somebody who's different from what they are used to seeing in an American. So they'd say, Mr. Lou, where are you from? And I would often give them a long, drawn-out story pointing to an imaginary map in the air and tell them I was born in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, and I grew up in a little town called Millville, Massachusetts, near the Rhode Island line between Worcester and Providence. I went to school in Worcester, Massachusetts, to college, and then to Boston. And by then they would lose interest because they didn't have the language skills or they simply uh, are too courteous to continue to press the point. Uh, so I never really answered the question because I didn't want to be put into a little niche, mm-hmm. a box. So uh, I, I would go, and sometimes people would press to the point where they'd say, where's your grandfather from? Uh, See, they're getting closer. Uh-huh, yeah. They want to know your roots. They want to know if you're a friend or a, fro- a foe. They want to know your religion. They want to know your cultural background. They want to know your language, your territory. Literally, they want to know, are you with them or are you against them? So then I go, I go to Djibouti, which is uh, just northeast of Somalia. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm on my way from Mogadishu in Somalia up to a, a city in the north, northern part of the country called Hargeisa. I hitch a ride on a U.N. plane. There's no other way to get up there except by plane, and there are no flights except for the U.N. So we stop in Djibouti. Uh, they took my passport there and wouldn't give it back to me until— Yikes until I registered at a hotel. You never want to leave your passport no. in, a, in any country, let alone in, in that area or in Africa. So I go, I get, I'm angry, of course, and I go anyway, and I go to the hotel register, and I return uh, in uh, two hours to get my passport. By this time, they're all stoned high on a narcotic leaf called cot or chat. It's commonly chewed 
in the afternoons on the Horn of Africa and in the uh, Persian Gulf, uh, in the uh, Arabian Peninsula area, the Persian Gulf area. It's widely chewed. And you either fall asleep when you chew it or you bounce off the ceiling. And I've seen people do both. So I go in there and they say they don't want to give me my passport. They refuse to give me my passport. They say, we don't have any visas. I said, they said, we don't have any trans, transit visas, which is cheaper, $18. Uh, regular visa is $36. I say, give me two regular visas. I don't care. I want my passport. I'll pay you whatever you want. They're laughing. They're stoned. And I'm getting angrier by the moment. And they say to me, Mr. Lou, where are you from? And I, I tell them, they said, no, Mr. Lou, where's your grandfather from? So by this time, I said, well, I'm not going to fool around with any more of this one sock at Millville business. I'm going to have to, I'm going to say, I want my passport to myself. I say, I want my passport. I said, my grandfather, my grandparents went from Syria to the United States 100 years ago. Perfect. And they, they started laughing. They were roaring laughing. And they said, that's why you're acting so crazy. And of course, that's, that's funny, you know, but I didn't want to laugh because I didn't want to give them the satisfaction, but that's funny, you know, that's why you're acting so crazy. And, and they finally, they wouldn't give me the passport. Uh. They still wouldn't give me the passport. So I go back to the, they say, come back tomorrow morning. The plane is leaving like four o'clock in the morning. I'm going to, I have to be there early. I have to get my passport visa. It didn't matter by then whether I had a visa or not. So I come back in the morning at two o'clock real early to make sure that I got on the, on the plane with the UN and got my passport. I get there and workers are demolishing the office where these people were sitting uh, less than 12 hours earlier where I was talking with them. So, but the, the desk is there. So I go rummaging through the drawers of the desk, the right, top right-hand donor, I put draw, I pull out the desk, and there's my passport. I grab it and I got the hell out of there. Oh my God. Got on the plane <laughs> and, uh, and went to Hargeisa. Now, the process of finding out who I was yeah. uh, continued, and it reached its a high point in Macedonia. I was in Skopje, Macedonia in the middle uh, 1990s, and I have a, an ethnic Albanian who was born in Macedonia, but he'll never be a Macedonian because he's an ancient Illyrian. He belongs to the Albanian tribe. He's not a Slav. He's not, he's not going to die there. He's going to live all his life in Macedonia. He's going to die there, but he'll never... He'll never be a Macedonian. So we're traveling. He's my translator. We're traveling to Albania. We're at the border. He looks at me, and he says, Mr. Lou, where are you from? I start giving him my one socket and uh, Millville uh, map uh, story. Right. And he, he says, no, Mr. Lou, you already told me that. He says, what's your blood? What's your blood? What's your blood? And I said, hold to myself. I said, damn, that's the question, really that everybody's really asking, and they didn't quite say it that way, but that's really what they're asking. Because in most of the world, uh, what your tribe is, what your blood is, that's really what matters the most. And once people know that, they put you in a little niche, a little box, and they figure they know everything there is to know about you, which, of course, is not true. It can't be the case anywhere, but it's less the case with, with someone like me uh, who has a, a varied uh, background, lived in a lot of places. How are they going to know anything about me? And my translator, the ethnic Albanian from Macedonia, the Macedonia, he never asked another question. So I don't know what that, my answer meant to him. I don't know whether he knew where Syria was. I don't know whether he assumed that he knew everything there was about me. Say, okay, he's from Syria, he's Muslim. He must be Muslim. Most of the country is Muslim. I don't know what it meant, but he never said another word. 
Fascinating. And, and that's where the idea for, for the book came, from that question. Well, I, we're talking with uh, Louis Salome. You, a lot of people have heard you, and people have said, you got to get this guy on your show. Uh, a lot of wise people out there. <laughs> Thank you. No, I've been trying. The book has only been out a few weeks, and uh, you have to let people know that it's there. Uh, the publisher uh, can only do so much, and then it becomes a, a personal uh, challenge right. to, get you, to get the information out. I've been over to Severodvinsk. I've traveled all over uh, Central Asia. I was in, in the Soviet Union when it was still the Soviet Union. Uh, so I, I know the people, and I like the people very much. The people I met over there were always extraordinarily nice to me, and I met them at really hard time when communism was collapsing and the people were uh, without much of anything. Uh, even food was difficult to find. And I can imagine that uh, the old Soviet Union was a, was a, a huge centralized collection. The power... It struck me as being very centralized, starting with uh, our buddy Joe Stalin there. And it, it's a collection of a lot of different tribes, right? I mean, the old Soviet Union, you got huge, unbelievably huge territory. And I always thought, now how can this work? You have a very repressive, centralized government that, that you know, if they don't like somebody or what they're standing for, you never hear from them again. Um, is that one of the things that, in, in your opinion, from your travels, helped make the Soviet Union fall was that it wasn't, uh, you know, if, if these people you're talking about asked, where are you from, what's your blood, what the heck is the Soviet Union? Absolutely. That's one of the reasons that uh, the Soviet Union collapsed. And uh, if you studied the, the country and knew anything about the people, you knew this couldn't last. Right. It absolutely couldn't last. There are too many uh, too many tribes, as you say. I mean, Kazakhstan Kazakhstan's alone is a huge country. It's an enormous country. Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, very, very large spaces. Kyrgyzstan, all that uh, stuff, yeah. And the a Caucasus region with its uh, scores of tribes in a very small space. And when the Soviet uh, Union fell, the remarkable thing to me was that there was so little bloodshed. Uh, there's the revolution in Chechnya, which is ongoing and in the Caucasus. And that's all about uh, tribes wanting to be uh, to govern themselves and to sure. be separated from Russia now. And Russia, of course, is a huge, a huge country. And the population of Russia dropped by more than 100 million people when the Soviet Union fell. And the population continues wow. to go down. Yeah. We are talking with uh, Louis Salome about uh, tribes and tribalism. And you know, I've, I've seen video of American troops going into Afghanistan and you know they, they go up to tribal elders and they say we're your friends and they give the kids some candy and they walk away and somehow it appears that they think all right we've made friends here no problem <laughs> you're shaking your head well, tell me why well I mean there are tribes galore in Afghanistan sure. and uh, we're trying to figure out uh, how are you going to in, in, inject democracy, Western-style democracy oh, in yeah. Afghanistan? I mean, that's a losing battle, a fool's mission. It's not very bright. I mean, what we really ought to be doing is to try to help the uh, Afghans uh, rule themselves in a, uh, a way that's uh, so the country is pacified, so it's, uh, people can l live together a, a bit. 
But you can't go in there and tell them what to do. I mean, they had three wars against the British in the 1900s and, and, and won them all, drove the British out. Uh, we know what happened to the Soviet Union in, in uh, Afghanistan with American arms going through Pakistan, some of which stayed in Pakistan, some of which went over uh, into uh, Afghanistan. I, when I was in Afghanistan, I sat down uh, with uh, a Pashtun tribesman who had, he said, an st- American-made Stinger missile. Mm. There were hundreds of Stinger missiles, mm. maybe a couple of thousand that went Very through Pakistan. Very yes. A shoulder-held uh, uh, weapon that you, you can shoot down helicopters with. And he wanted $150,000 for a Stinger missile. Of course, I, I'm not... I have neither the means nor the inclination to buy a missile, <laughs> but I wanted to talk with him to see uh, what he was offering and who he was and, and, and what the deal would, would, uh, would require. So he wanted $15,000 up front. Uh, and, of course, I, I wasn't going to pay him $15,000 uh, or anything, actually. But I got the story. I found out who he was. I found out who he's working for, at least uh, what he told me. And in the process, he had a nice whip. He, this is the way that region works. He had a beautiful hand whip uh, that he used to play uh, buskachi, the Afghan horse game. It's like polo oh, yeah. uh, with a sheep uh, or a calf's uh, hide slung over the saddle. You run around on an open field, and if you can cross one end, you get points, you and your team, and you try to cross... Uh, the other end, you get more points, and uh, everybody, is, your own teammates support you against everybody else. So it's one team, one tribe, against all the other tribes, and that's how the game was played. So he had this beautiful handmade whip, a special for him. I, t- I admired it. I told him how nice it was. And when you uh, admire anything that a person in that part of the world is wearing or owns, they will offer it to you. Huh. And I said, oh, no, I said, I can't accept it. Uh, it's not fair. And he kept insisting. I kept saying no. Finally, he kept insisting again, and I, I, I took it, and I have it now. His own handmade uh, a whip that he used to play the Buscacci game. Uh, the Riders are called Chapandas. If you ever get a chance to see, and I've, I've seen them, I think, on public uh, television, the games, they uh, often played uh, on the open steppe of, uh, of Central Asia. So there are no boundaries, and the games will last for days or weeks. Oh. It's like a, an old-fashioned Renaissance fair of jousting oh, and wow. so on, only it's a particular uh, Afghan or Uzbek uh, game. In Kabul, they play in more of a stadium. They play in a stadium setting. Right. So the confines are there, but often the horses and the riders will go right to the edge of the stands, almost in the stands, before they pull back and continue the game. Very exciting, and I've heard... You know, sports referred to as sublimated war. You know, there have been, I mean, football, soccer is uh, very, very popular around the world, not so much here in the United States, but it seems to be, I mean, it kind of looks like tribe against tribe in England, you know, you get, yeah. and they get really worked up about it here, the identity of, of one particular neighborhood or one particular region. And I wonder how sports can play into it to keep the peace and keep blood from flowing between tribes. Well, I think it has that effect. But in Afghan, uh, Bushkachi is used as a metaphor for Afghan politics because when one team has the calf, which, by the way, is soaked for several days to make it really heavy, 
And so the horsemen have to carry it around either slung over the saddle or between their leg, the stirrup, and the horse. Yeah. The horse's side. It's very heavy. Yeah. So when one team has, when one player for one team has the calf or the sheep or the lamb, uh, then everybody else is allied against the team that has the animal. And they all rush at it. And the teammates of the player who, uh, who has the uh, calf, their job is to protect and plow through the enemy, all the other players. So that is a metaphor for Afghan politics, where the uh, group in power is opposed by every other tribe. Yeah. You know, the thing that uh, most Americans, I don't think, understand and are not told is that the Pashtun tribes in Afghanistan are, are the real Afghans. Uh, they are about 60% or more of the population. The Tajiks, the Uzbeks, the Hazaras, the Nuristanis, all the other tribes are frac fractions of the Pashtuns. So when you have uh, Hamid Karzai as the, as the leader of, uh, of Afghanistan, he's a Pashtun. You cannot, if you're going to replace him, and I'm not saying that should be done, I don't think it should, but if you're going to replace him, you have to have another Pashtun. You cannot have a, a member of a minority tribe run that country. And it cannot be run along democratic, uh, so-called Western democratic lines. It just can't. You've got to re know how to balance one against the other or against all the others. And, it, you know, this, this idea of imposing Western democratic uh, uh, principles and even uh, map lines, uh, I'm thinking of 1919. You know what I'm about to talk Iraq. Mm. There was, as far as I know, there was no Iraq before the British and the French after the First World War, uh, which is a talk about tribal warfare, mm. uh, created this Iraq. And you got the, we all know finally about the, the Shia and the Sunni in Iraq. There's also the Kurds there. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can talk about the chances for I, can Iraq survive? Is it a country? Is it a nation? What what can possibly happen there amongst the what's what appears to be strong, very violent tribal uh, uh, you know people are attached to their own tribes and not to the other tribes. Well, it is as you say uh, artificial in the sense that the lines were drawn by the British essentially. Yeah. Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, all lines drawn by uh -huh. Western powers after World War One. Uh, under uh, a League of Nations uh, mandates. Right. And uh, if you go to northern Iraq, you run up against the Kurds. Right. Excuse me, several million Kurds in northern Iraq, something like 25 million Kurds around the world. And in that part of the region, uh, there's Ira there are Iraqi uh, Kurds, there are Iranian Kurds, there are Syrian Kurds, there are Turkish Kurds, which is an enormous problem in Turkey, and there are even Tur uh, Turks in uh, what is used to be the Southern Soviet Union around Azerbaijan in that area. Uh, you're, if you, you're in northern Iraq, you're going to be in Iraqi Kurdistan. You're not going to be in Iraq uh -huh, solely. Uh -huh. And the same will be true in the uh, Iranian uh, Kurdistan areas. And when I crossed, after the, the first Gulf War, 1991, uh, I crossed uh, from Syria uh, into Iraq, across the Tigris 
uh, river and was met by Kur a couple of Kurds. Uh, they took us into northern Iraq, and, and they all they ever talked about was, you are in Iraqi Kurdistan. This is Iraqi Kurdistan. All the way down almost to the uh, center of the country and the town, the big city of Kirkuk, which is a Kurdish city, but there's a lot of oil there, and there's a lot of, fight, uh, a lot of argument about where that oil is going to go. In the south, you have the Shia, the Arabs, uh, Arab Shiites. They're called the Mosh Arabs. And uh, they are, uh, actually, the Shiites are 60-65% uh, of the population uh, in, in Iraq, where the Sunni uh, tr uh, people, who were led actually by the family of Saddam Hussein, uh, and, and he, all of uh, his power came from his pam family in the, the town where his family lived. And so you do have this uh, conflict among the tribes in Iraq, and uh, that's not likely to go away. Right. You had the Sunni under, under Saddam Hussein, they controlled the country. That creates an awful lot of animosity sure. among others, I would think especially so. among the Shiites yeah. in the South. Sure. So now the Shiites are sensing an opportunity for power. How are they going to use it? How are the Sunnis going to accept it? Uh, that's a very, very uh, tenuous and difficult uh, area and not one that's going to be pacified soon. Wow. Iraq. I can't imagine what a solution would be. We're talking here on Louis Salome about uh, his new book, Violence, Veils, and Bloodlines. I can see now where that title come from, uh, the, the bloodlines. And, uh, oh, man, there's so many issues. You, you said, I believe I have this quote right, what I call tribal behavior is universal as people everywhere adhere mm -hmm. to what binds them to their own family, clan, or tribe and leads them to oppose others who favor different tribal characteristics. And I note, I haven't seen any maps. Maybe I missed something. Is there a Kurdistan on the map? No, of course not. <laughs> uh, the problem with, the, with Kurdistan, of course, is, is in part Turkey. Uh, Turkey is a member of NATO, an ally of uh, uh -huh. the United States. And if you're going to extend the autonomy that the Kurds have in, in Iraq right now, they have self-government to a certain extent, but they're pop, a part of, of Iraq. If you're going to extend uh, the Tur Kurdish power uh, in Iraq, you're going to have to then start talking about Turkey. What are you going to do with all the uh, uh, Kurds in Turkey? And, and that's, uh, Turkey is never going to accept that. You have a similar problem uh, in Iran. Uh, I'd like to go back just for a second. Uh, you mentioned the cover. Uh, the cover shows a veiled woman, her eyes uh, uh, bared, looking down at a smoking oil field in Algeria. Uh. I took that photo uh, in Algeria when I was in the oil uh, oasis of uh, Hassi Mesaoud. Uh, that was in the um, mid-90s, maybe, maybe 97, I think. I'd have to check uh, the exact date. But th that's where the cover comes from. And so it's a very, ev it's a very evocative cover. Yes. But I I I'd like to say this also about the book. While it's a serious subject, and the book is a, is a serious uh, work, it is also filled with adventure, mystery, and humor. Uh, things that happened along the way as I reported and as I uncovered uh, the real behavior of the people. 
So it's not it's not a, a treatise. Uh-huh. It's not. Uh, it has history and it has culture, uh, all of which are used to, to explain the total uh, story, which is which is really tribalism. That's how it works. And and you talk about color. I was lucky enough to to travel in Guatemala uh, back in 1995, I believe it was. And you talk about color. The colors of the clothes that the women wore, I mean, to us Westerners, it looks like, wow, that's kind of cool colors. But it reflects their, their tribes. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's their own, like, uniform, like their own kind of flag in, in a way. And uh, I can just imagine some of the, the colors, literally colors, that uh, you must have seen in, uh, in some of your travels that are described in the book. I don't know if you can share some of the... Uh, uh, you, you talk about a lot of adventure and color. Uh, spin us a yarn of adventure from your book. Well, uh, I can tell you uh, several stories. I'll try to focus on one. Sure. Uh, going into Iraq, I, I mentioned. Uh, go up. I met an Irish uh, uh, a photographer from Ireland. I met him in Damascus. I had been in Cyprus trying to make connections to get some Kurdish support to go into Iraqi Kurdistan. It fell through. I go to Damascus. I meet this photographer uh, from Ireland who was working at the time for the Associated Press. So we uh, we drive uh, up to um, uh, Kamishli, uh, up in uh, up in northern Syria. We make connections there, and we cross the uh, Tigris River, which marks the border between Syria and Iraq in a small boat with a half-horsepower uh, putt-putt engine, <laughs> and, and I can't swim, and I still can't. I couldn't then, and I still can't. And the, uh, uh, the water level was about uh, an inch or less uh, from the edge uh, lip of the, of the boat, and the boat was leaking. So we're bailing water, Yikes. and this guy is taking us over uh, into uh, Iraqi Kurdistan. We meet a couple of Kurds there, and uh, we sit by the side of the road waiting for a car to come up from uh, Zako in northern Iraq, a city in northern Iraq. And we didn't walk because there were mines all along the road, and you, mm. can't, you don't know where you're going. So you sit still, wait for the car to come. They know the road. And then after about 10 days in, in northern Iraq, uh, watching the uh, Kurds get whipped by the Iraqi tanks and helicopters, the Iraqi army, we had to flee. And we... Uh, we flee from our, the town of Erbil, which is in Kurdistan, Iraqi Kurdistan in northern Iraq. It took us uh, eight hours to find a couple of cars. There were 16 journalists in our group. We found uh, several cars, and one of them crashed in the square. It was about to pick us up. We had to go get another one. This is all detailed uh, in the book. And then we, we get enough cars to head north uh, out. Uh, of the country through the mountains into Turkey. Uh, we get up into the mountain uh, town, or it's really a, uh, a, a Kurdish a fort called Diana. And uh, the, our, cars, our cars were too small to go on. So we, we discuss this situation with the Kurds uh, at this outpost, and they say, you can't go in that, those cars. They're too small. You'll get stuck. It's all mud, and, and, and the road is out, and there are trees in the road. And, and we said, we got to go. We got to go. The, you know, the Iraqis are coming. We got to get out of here. So we find, or they help us find, a 10-wheel truck, a dump truck. 
and uh, we all pile in. Most uh, I was in the front cab with a, a Jordanian and uh, a Peshmerga. Uh, Peshmerga is a, Kur- uh, a Kurdish fighter. So and the driver and everybody else is is in the uh, thirteen more I guess that makes us in the in the bed of the truck, and we head over the uh, over the mountain road and we get stuck in the mud uh, and we have to get out and throw um, uh, boulders and uh, large tree limbs into the uh, road to give us some traction. While we're doing this, the Peshmerga, the Kurdish fighter, is, leaves the cab of the truck runs down uh, uh, the bank of a, of a fast-flowing river, and it's a steep cliff, and he, get, and he catches a fish with his bare hands. Comes back up and, and puts it on the dashboard where it stays for a day and a half or so, and he takes it and brings it home to his village. It's food for a meal. And finally, uh, after a very difficult trip, we reach northern Iraq, Zako, and there, the driver wouldn't go any farther. Our driver of this pickup of this dump truck wouldn't go any farther. He says, uh, "My truck is not running right. I can't go." He was afraid. Actually, he was yeah. afraid. He was afraid sure. all the way. And at one point, he was so afraid he refused to drive us when we were in the mountains. And the the Jordanian uh, photographer he was a television man, and uh, he was shooting uh, a television film. And he actually drove the car. He said, oh, I, uh, the truck. He said, I can do this. I can do this. It was one of those things that had two levels of shifts. I mean, I wouldn't even know oh, where right, to begin. Right. You know, it, big, it, heavy truck. Big, big that. truck. Yeah, yeah. And so this Jordanian guy gets in, and he's, and he's creeping along. And the, the owner of the truck sat next to him and tried to help him and tell him when to shift and everything. The Jordanian had said originally that he knew how to drive the truck. After he, finished, uh, he, after he left the driver's seat, he said, you know, I never drove one of these before in my life. I didn't know what I was doing. I'm glad he told us after and not before. So finally, we get up to Zako, and, we, and this driver in his truck, he wouldn't go any farther. We ca- ca- sort of commandeer a, uh, a small a minibus, all 16 of us now, and uh, we get in this minibus, but it gets a flat tire a mile from the Habur River. Now, we were, we're in northern, straight northern uh, Iraq. We couldn't cross back into Syria across the to the east across the Tigris because the Iraqi army had control of the place where we crossed earlier. So we, we, we get uh, this uh, minivan and the tire's flat. We have to get out and walk another mile to the river, to the Habur River, where we meet some Kurdish fighters in, a, in an outpost, like one of those uh, forest fire stands that uh, you may be familiar with up here in New England. Sure. So I... Uh, we stay there on the um, on the banks of the river. Finally, convince the Kurdish soldiers not to shoot at the helicopters, because by shooting at the helicopters, they were drawing fire to them and to us. The helicopters were raining rockets down all around us and into the river, and we're hiding by an abandoned a uh, couple of abandoned buildings. And uh, finally, the Kurdish uh, fighters left, and we were there alone. And we spent the night there. And the next night, we had a big discussion about swimming across the Habur River. And, and this is all detailed in the book, and I actually uh, kept all my notes uh, from my work, so I, I was able to be precise uh, because I had the notes. So we're, st- we're lying in the reeds along the river after the Iraqi, uh, the uh, Peshmerga, the uh, Kurdish fight is left. We're in the reeds trying to figure out what to do. We have a big discussion. We're going to swim across the river. 
I say, look, you guys go. Yeah, right. Wait for me. I'm not swimming. Oh, we'll take care of you. I say, yeah, you'll have all you can do to take care of yourself. So I, 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 I convinced them. Uh, they convinced themselves, actually. At first, there were eight people who were willing to, to swim. They said, oh, they could do it. And then finally, we were down to four. Because my argument was, look, there are mines along this side of the river. We don't know where the mines are. The Turks don't want us to come because they think we're Kurds. And that side of the river is probably mined. We're going to swim, and we're going to get there, and they're going to shoot us, or we're going to get blown up. So I said, no, I'm not, I'm not going. And they said, okay, well, four of us, four of them finally decided to go. One of them was a, a French reporter from Figaro newspaper. Uh, the uh, two others were from CNN. And the fourth was the photographer who was with me, Martin Nangle, the Irish fellow. And they get in the water. And the, the Turks, one of our, our people, we had a Turkish-speaking uh, reporter among our group. And they shouted, the Turks shouted back, if you come across, we're going to shoot you. We held up a, a, a sheet. One of, one, of our, our, one, of the, one of the reporters had a large white sheet. We wrote on it uh, in Turkish that we were Western reporters and we were coming across. They said, if you come across, we're going to shoot you. So four got in the water. Two made it, and the other two turned around and came back because the Turks started to shoot very close in a semicircle around them, very, very close. Boom, 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 right around them. They didn't shoot as close to the first two. The two who made it, one of them was, uh, I, I believe, without looking at my notes uh, or my book, uh, Jim Hill, who was a reporter with CNN in New York, and uh, the, the reporter from Figaro, who later uh, supposedly committed suicide mm. on one of the uh, Spanish uh, islands when he was trying to write a book about Bosnia, and he was angry because the world wasn't paying attention to what was going on in Bosnia. He went there to write a book, and he was found hanged there and uh, suicide was uh, supposed to be the reason but it's never really been determined wow. determined so finally uh they got across two got across jim hill and the reporter from figaro uh the reporter from figaro had interviewed the turkish governor of the province uh, we were in uh, a few months before he got in touch with the governor the governor said help these guys he told the army to get us help and so that's how we got out 10.30 or so the following morning, uh, they yelled at us that the, there was a raft was coming over. Mm. And two middle-aged or older men, one wearing a blue blazer over a, uh, a T-shirt and shorts, they came over in a raft that was made of large inner tubes, truck inner tubes, and uh, wood staves uh, looking as if they came from orange crates. Mm. You know, the thin pieces yeah. of wood? Yeah. All tied together by uh, the brown plastic uh, cable wire that used to connect televisions to antennas. Yeah. You know, that, that thin stuff? Uh -huh. and, and they wrapped it. It was all wrapped together. And there were 14 of us left, and we went across the river, the Habur River, which was high and very fast-flowing. And that's how we escaped. From, uh, from Iraqi Kurdistan. There are, there are a lot of, uh, the, the book is just really uh, replete with uh, stories of, uh, of, of the, that kind of adventure, mystery, unknown, what was going to happen next, and there's a lot of humor in it as well. And you seem to be in one piece, which is impressive. <laughs> well, you, when you're there and you're working and you're doing it, you never even think about the possibilities that this could go wrong. It's only later you say, you know, that was pretty stupid thing we did. <laughs> you know, gee, that would have been a mistake. Why didn't we do this? 
But my, my tendency was to always play it straight, to look people in the eye, to tell the truth. And when people asked me how much money I had in my money belt, I would tell them the truth. Or when they asked me how much money I had on my person, because when you go into countries, certain countries, you had to declare the foreign currency you were bringing right. so that when you left, you had receipts and they could compare the receipts of what you spent with what you had and then see what you had left on you. They could tell. So they're going to find out anyway. Yeah. But, but, they, yeah, but they, if they don't know what you have when you go in, they can never tell how much you spent when you were there. So they want to know. So they want to know. Yeah. So uh, they would ask me, how, uh, how much money do you, ha- do you have on you? And I would think, because I used to carry money uh, all over you. You carry it all over your person. You don't put it all in one place. Right. Little in this pocket, little in that pocket, little in the pouch around your neck, little in the money belt. So I told the guy, I forgot, it was something like $10,000. I said, I have $10,000. He said, does that include the money in your money belt? Because they know people coming into the country carry money in different fashions, in different places. I said, yes. He said, let's see. So I had to take all the money out of my wallet, out of my pouch, out of my pockets, and out of my money belt. And it added up. And he said, you're honest. Thank you very much. And I left. But you don't lie. Basically, you don't lie. Unless you're really caught in a bind and you're pretty sure you can't be caught in the lie. And I can imagine, maybe I'm wrong here, that, that one of the things about you know, being in a tribe is, is, is being sort of honest with themselves. Like they kept pressing you, as we said in the beginning of the show, about what's your blood? You know, who are you really? You know, and that, that honesty must be important. And I, I, you know, it makes me wonder. I look around the world at, at U.S. And, and British and other imperialist nations, foreign policy, and... Uh, you know, I, I wonder if if they get that, I mean, can tribalism ever be defeated or is it just absolutely inevitable it's going to win out? And I think about Yugoslavia. There was Tito. He was the head of Yugoslavia. Was there a, a Yugoslavia before Tito? No. Was there a Yugoslavia after Tito? No. It was a bunch of, it struck me as as tribes. And can it ever be? successfully imposed from the top you know uh, can can tribes be forced to live together i mean now what used to be yugoslavia i probably miss a few macedonia uh, slovenia. Uh, bosnia S- slovenia. slovenia was part of it and you know this was the case uh, before the first world war you know in in what's Croatia, now you got serbia yeah uh, and montenegro can that ever be destroyed all these Small nations must consider themselves to be, uh, I don't know if tribe is the right word, but to have some, you know, real ethnic solidarity. Uh, well, that's a very good question, and it comes up uh, frequently. Uh, the, I think tribalism, and, and that is uh, what binds people. You, we're talking religion. We're talking language. We're right. talking territory. You're talking culture. You're talking... Uh, history, because what people, uh, what leaders do, uh, tribal leaders do, and outside forces too, uh, a lot of the of the conflict is provoked by outside forces trying to take advantage of conflict and what they can get out uh-huh. of the conflict. Uh-huh. That happens a lot. Uh-huh. I mean, you mentioned imperialism, all sorts of imperialism, and that's a factor uh, in it as well. But I think tribalism is in the DNA of the human species. 
Yeah, I was I, wondering about I that. I just think it's in the DNA from what I saw, and I think from what you read in a more academic uh, or scientific way, I, I think it's unavoidable. Uh, there's an, there are a couple of things um, that, that came up uh, in, within my eyesight in recent uh, months. One of them was uh, two historians. Uh, I believe they were on, uh, on Channel 2. They were discussing John Adams and Abigail Adams. And John Adams was uh, in France as the ambassador in France. And Abigail, his, his soulmate, was here in the United States. And he writes to her about the difficulties they were having negotiating things and uh, dealing with the American Indian tribes. And uh, she said, uh, she writes back and says, well, you know, the Indian tribes, that's one thing. But what about the, tr the gender tribes, men and women? And there's a chapter in this book about gender, the largest tribal fault of all. Is men and women. Now, I mean, think of it in the United States. I mean, uh, we have it here, although it's uh, much more muted than, say, in Afghanistan. But when did women get the right to vote? When? 19, when did women get the right to vote? In 1917? Or? It's not that long no, ago, really. Uh, whenever, I, I don't remember the exact date, but you're talking about a thing very frequent uh, <laughs> development, uh, equal pay for equal work, all those kinds of things. And in Afghanistan, and, and the Middle East and Southwest Asia are not all uniform in, in the way they uh, treat women. Uh, there is severity, uh -huh. more severity in, in one place than in another. It's not, it's, it's not good in most places. It's not, it's not right. a place where you want to live. If you're, if you're a woman who has ex experience in the West, you don't want to be there. But back to, back to your question about about tribalism, and I think it's in the DNA. Yeah. But there also, there's also progress that's made over a long period of time. And if you can envision a very large wheel, a gigantic wheel, that represents the progress of uh, change over time, the progression of, of rights or the expansion of rights over time, this wheel is very, very huge and moves very, very slowly. But it moves... Uh, by, it's moved by small wheels at the base of it, spinning around very, very fast. And they move, like you say, okay, we don't have slavery anymore, right? right. But we did have slavery for 230 years A or so. A long time, yeah. And we had uh, uh, Jim Crow laws. Sure. And almost slavery for another 100 years. Right. Uh, so uh, those things happen over a long period of time, and they spin fast. The little wheels spin, right. and they move the big wheel. Very, 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 very slowly. And wars are setbacks often. So there are things that make the little wheels go backwards mm. and also bring the big wheel backwards. So when you talk about are we ever going to get over this tribal thing? Well, if we do, it's going to take a heck of a long time, <laughs> a really long time. But you can point to progress that, that have, has been made over uh, centuries. I can really get that picture of small wheels turning, working really hard. Mm. A few people working mm -hmm. really, really hard and moving the thing really, really slowly. And, you know, the United States has, has uh, you know, I grew up with it referred to as the melting pot, where we leave our tribes basically behind. And I remember back in college reading a book called The Uprooted by Oscar mm -hmm. Handlin, mm -hmm. yeah. very informative book about, and he talks about, what we lost when we kind of gave up. I mean, my, my ancestors came from shtetls in the, mm. in the uh, you know, uh, Estonia, Latvia, mm. Lithuania area. 
And we had a sense of who we were. We had a sense of identity. We were part of a tribe. We knew who we were. The other people in the tribe would look out for us. And, you know, I wonder if if that can ever happen in the United States. Another uh, uh, author, Gore Vidal, has described the currently United States not as one nation, but instead as a land of perpetually warring tribes. And, you know, you got black and white, you got the, the Southerners, the Northerners, you got liberals, you got Tea Party people. It doesn't, can we even stay united, I wonder? I mean, because we are, you know, what's good for the Northeast, the Southwest is completely different. The Southeast is, is very different. The Midwest, they're all kind of unique identities here. And of course, people came from you know, and in, and in the uh, American Civil War, there were, uh, in the Revolution, there were the German factions and Irish and Chinese, and it, there's been repression all throughout. And, you know, the, the, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants have, have tried, this is no surprise, to, to be dominant, you know, over all the other tribes. But I wonder if, if we can ever really get over that. My, my sense is, no, not really. I think it's part of our DNA that we want to... There's a value in tribes that we're part of something. I think that we feel connected. There, we have our identity. There, there is definitely a, a value. It's not all negative, right? But often it's the negative that is is used by people seeking to control the situation or control uh, the tribe or the region, and they pick up on the negative. In in Bosnia and Serbia and Croatia, for example, it was uh, Milosevic who was uh, leading uh, Serbia Yugoslavia at the time, and uh, Franjo Tuđman who was the leader of Croatia. They were deciding they were going to slice up Bosnia because they were the Muslims mostly, uh, and we'll take uh, we'll take part of it for us, uh, for the Serbs, part of it for uh, the Croatians, and the right. hell, and the heck and the heck with the Bosnian Muslims. That, that's uh, what the plan was. So they were wow. and they were using history. Uh, in in um, in uh, Milosevic's case, I mean Greater Serbia. Now Greater Serbia hasn't existed since uh, 1389, when the Turks defeated the King of Serbia in the the Battle of the uh, the uh, Blackbirds. I think it's Blackbird Fields or whatever. I've forgotten exactly. I have no clue. But uh, that's that's what it was called. And yet you bring that up, and everybody says, oh, "Oh God, we want to have that back again," and they don't even know what they're talking about. But you're you're. Uh, it, it, we have a, war, a little war going on in this country right now, social, economic war. Yeah, There's no question about it. States' rights law, that's what's going on. And if you refuse to accept it, I think you're denying uh, reality. There's one more thing I'd like to mention, Bert, if I may, about, oh, about the book. Sure. Um, one of the reasons I was able, I think, to discern what I was seeing and to understand it for the tribal uh, uh, thing that it is is because of my own family. Uh I go knocking, uh, well, I'll start at the beginning of the, ch of the last chapter. Uh, my mother's parents left a two-year-old daughter in Syria when they came to the United States about 1905. Her grandmother, the little girl's grandmother, wouldn't let her leave. Now, the little girl's grandmother is my great-grandmother. She wouldn't let her go. Uh, she's figuring she's going to keep the tether to the family. Her, uh, the little girl's uh, parents are going to go to the United States. They'll come back, and the family right. will be whole. Right. Again. And they're thinking, well, uh, we're going to get enough money. We're going to return to Syria. We're going to get our daughter. Sure. By the time they got enough money, the grandmother had had married off the daughter oh. to an older, uh, older man in the village. They never saw each other again. Wow. It's remarkable. And yet, 
And uh, this was something he never talked about in the family here, at least not to the grandchildren. My mother uh, knew about it and uh, her sisters and brothers, but they never talked about it, and my grandparents never did because that's a stain. To be separated, to be split, it's like having uh, you know, an arm or, sure. or several fingers cut off and separated. And this, was, uh, this wasn't that common, but it happened among immigrants coming to this, uh, to this country. So in 1959, 1955, I'm sorry, my uh, first cousin over there, uh, my aunt's, the woman who was left behind, son, gets married. He marries a second cousin on my father's side. Uh, and, and he sends a photo of their wedding to his grandmother in the United States, whom he's never seen. His grandfather by then and my grandfather, the same people, uh, were, had died. But the gra- my grandmother was still alive. He sends her this photo. And then the, I have a copy of the photo, and the photo is in the book. Now, that, I mean, talk about tribal, first cousin marrying, second cousin. My parents' marriage was an arranged marriage. My grandparents, on my father's side, were first cousins because that's how you build the tribe. Right. When first cousins marry, the children stay in the same family, and the tribe increases in number like that. So that's, that's, how, that's how the thing works. And another example in my own family... Uh, my father died at the end of 1963. My wife, Pat, and I were going to get married. We were planning to get married in July of 64, which we did. The word gets back to the village in Syria. All my relatives are from the same village, both sides of the family. Word gets back that my father had died. Uh, one of my father's uh, nephews uh, was supposed to get married in February, and he postponed the wedding. Because of my father's death in, in, um, in tribute, in respect, out of respect for my father. And, and, in effect, for his father. Because his father and my grandfather were brothers. So when a member of the family died, even though it's here in the United States right. and he's there, and they never saw each other, never knew each other, he refused to get married. But I went ahead, despite some turmoil in the family here, Pat and I went ahead and got married in July. With six months, we thought was appropriate because that's more the American way. Over there, you wait a year. Wow, you wait a year. That's that's tribal. You know, I, I, there there's so many examples that come to mind of of, of tribal. We've seen the movie uh, The Godfather, the series there, and The Sopranos. Family, family's important. I come from a Jewish tradition. Yeah. Family yeah. is important. important. You know, there's this Ashkenazis, there's yeah. Sephardics. You know, two yeah. different uh, yeah. uh, people, really. And uh, you know, there's a lot to be said for for being a tribe. Yeah. And back yeah. in the in the late yeah. '60s, a lot of the hippies wanted to feel like a tribe. There was yeah. the gathering of the tribes, you know, that that we had there. And and you know, we noticed that was that was missing in our life. Well, well, that's why that's why the book is about everybody. Or I should say, everybody is in the book. Uh-huh. Everybody is in the book. The p- thing is for the readers to find out where they are and how they fit in. But they'll f- people will see themselves or families, things that happen in their own family that they're aware of. It's all in here. Fascinating. Yeah, this has been great fun. Well, thank you so much, uh, Louis Salome. The book is Violence, Veils, and Bloodlines. Fascinating stuff. I mean, in so many different ways from... from War coverage and and, and, the, and the tribalism, great stuff. Violence. Thank you.
I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Twice a week, every week, subscribe. Don't miss a single one on the website, Apple Podcast, Spotify, or Stitcher.